This episode of Control is brought to you by Melbourne Recital Centre, where live music lives. Melbourne Recital Centre inspires our community through music, presenting and hosting hundreds of concerts each year traversing all genres of music from Baroque to post-rock. Discover more at melbournerecital.com.au. There's no one that's female. I mean, why in the hell would I think that I can be successful? Women are not making it to the top of any profession. So it's a very male-dominated environment. We do exist in this society where women in entertainment are discarded. There are women over 40 making pop music, but you won't hear them on commercial radio. And this is why conversation between women and music has never been more important. Hi, and welcome to Control, the podcast where we speak to incredibly inspiring artists, entrepreneurs, game changers, and change makers in the music and arts industries. I'm Chelsea Wilson, your host, and in this episode, recorded in the beautiful Primrose Potter Salon at Melbourne Recital Centre, I'm speaking to award-winning soprano, cabaret star, and festival director, Ali McGregor. A Peter Moore Scholar at the Royal Northern College of Music in the UK, Ali started her career as a principal soprano with Opera Australia. After performing in over 25 productions, she moved into cabaret, developing her own shows and appearing at festivals such as Melbourne International Comedy Festival, Edinburgh Fringe, Perth Fringe, Adelaide Fringe and London's Wonderground. She's since performed as an actress with Sydney Theatre Company worked with the Sydney Symphony Orchestra and appeared at Glastonbury Festival and Carnegie Hall. And in 2016 to 2017, Ali was co-artistic director for Adelaide Cabaret Festival alongside Eddie Perfect, returning as sole artistic director in 2018. A Helpman and Green Room Award winner, she was also nominated for an aria for her ABC release, Jasmine Tats. In this conversation, I ask Ali about body image in opera, her thoughts on inclusion in the arts, her work as a festival director, and so much more. Plus, she gives us a special live performance. This is Ali McGregor in Control. What's this? This is some random opera. It's you. What? Ali McGregor, <laughs> welcome to Control. Hi. <laughs> so great to finally get to chat to you. I've really been looking forward to this. <laughs> so I'm still laughing at what that was. <laughs> Maybe it's from Love of Three Oranges? Yes, it I is. I don't think I was in that scene, though. But anyway, it was lovely. According to iTunes, that. that is you. Oh. That is you, and it sounds fantastic. <laughs> yes. Right. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to play mm. that because I wanted to start our chat mm. by talking about opera, mm. which has been such a huge part of your life and your career. What attracted you to opera? Was it a genre that always appealed to you as a kid? No. And it's funny because I've spent my whole career running away from it, but I always come back to it. I, when I was at school, I loved being in school performances, in the plays and any musicals they ever did. And I think when I was in, uh, I was saying in the, in the choir, and that was always sort of classically based, a lot of hymns, um, and, and I just always wanted the solos. So <laughs> I, uh, I loved a descant. And then I think it was probably in year 10, I got a, a singing teacher 
who was um, a quite well-known countertenor, Hartley Newman. Um, and I hadn't really uh, sung opera, or I'd never seen an opera before, but that was the style of music he was teaching there. And it wasn't until I was in year 11 that the school I was at had a jazz teacher. And so I hadn't really, there was no other option. If I wanted to learn singing, I learned classically. And, and I did love the discipline of it. I loved being able to find this, this range in my voice that, you know, it sort of expanded what I thought I could do. Um, and then I did start Paul Retke, who's a, uh, an amazing uh, guitarist, from, um, Victorian jazz guitarist. Uh, started teaching jazz and I did start singing jazz. And I remember having a conversation with him about when I left school, what I was going to do. And, and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to try and learn and study opera and then I can kind of, once I've got that technique and that knowledge in, then I can decide what I want to do. And I never really thought I would go on with it as a career. But then just, you know, things sort of move on from one thing to another. And then I ended up going overseas and uh, teaching in a boarding school and then auditioning for some colleges and got into the Royal Northern College of Music um, with a scholarship and as a soprano and got an amazing teacher there and and just always loved it. But yes, was always kind of um, a bit embarrassed about it, kind of running away from it. But um, it stuck with me and I've stuck with it. Well, I'm sure, you know, it's not the common music for teenagers to be listening to. No, certainly not. And I don't and I didn't and still don't really listen to it that much you know, when I'm just listening to music. For me, opera is a live medium, very much. And, and I saw my first... Well, the first opera I saw nearly ruined it for me. It was La Clemenza di Tito, and it was super boring, and I nearly didn't go back. Um, it was Victorian State Opera. And then I saw... I saw a couple of things. I saw a Madame Butterfly that was at Spoleto Festival, and I think it was a Mike Lee production, and it was... Incredible to this day, it still is one of the most amazing performances I'd ever seen. And just from a stagecraft point of view, it was it was really amazing. But it it just sort of got me like no other medium did. And still to this day, nothing really just hits me and just sort of taps into those sort of deep emotions for me, like opera does. Um, I also heard this quote. Katie Lang, who I love, she was interviewed and she was talking about singing country and western music and I asked her why she started, you know, her career at the start was so much country and western. And she actually said she loved the really strict rules around country and western music and she loved the challenge of finding her own voice and her own style within those rules. And I remember hearing that and thinking that's actually I think what I love about opera I love that there are so many rules and you have to then find your individuality and find your sort of voice within those rules I think I like parameters to work within so um yeah so I've sort of stuck with it run away and come back and run away and come back as an art form it really kicked off during the renaissance era yeah. and it was hugely popular but why do you think it's really stood the test of time and we're still practising it as an art form today? I think because there is nothing like... Uh, the operatic voice is its own amplifier. And so hearing someone sing operatically live 
does something to your brain chemistry. There is something that happens. I used to do this little trick when I was with mates in the car where I'd make them all close their eyes <laughs> and I would just sing, you know, a phrase from an aria. Especially and if it was at a certain time of night when their brains were at a certain level of chemistry, it would kind of blow them a little bit because there is nothing like... Something happens acoustically in your head when you hear that. So I think it's, it's sustained because of that. I think because just the natural beauty of the operatic voice um, and especially with a live orchestra, I just don't think anything can compare to it. And nowadays when so much music we hear is manipulated and is, is so far away from the live experience, as you could imagine, there is something incredible about that live operatic voice. It's just so powerful. Yeah. It's huge. And I think that's what's so appealing about it as well. And also, it sounds so human, you know, for want of a better description. Yeah, there's a real vulnerability, and especially, you know, if you get a, a, a really great singing actor, a, an opera singer who acts very well, um, isn't, isn't too precious about their voice, it can really hit you. There's a great quote that I love as well by W.H. Auden, because um, people always ask me, you know, oh, it's so, opera's so fake, it's so, you know, um, unrealistic, especially people in music theatre, and they'll think it's so naff. W.H. Auden said, um, opera cannot be sensible because people do not sing when they're feeling sensible. And so I think... There I is this that. heightened sense. So people sing when they're... You wail when you're mm -hmm. really upset. You sing and shout for joy when you're really, really happy. And, and it's those extremes of emotion where opera really turns it on. And that's, I think, where opera really shines is, is in those really... In the, in the extremities of emotion. And opera is such a divisive art form. I feel like a lot of people would say that they hate opera. Sure. And they've never even been to the opera. Sure. I feel like a lot of people would really love it, though, if they went. Yeah. That's why I started Opera Burlesque, I think, because at the time, uh, the famous Beagle Tent was uh, outside the art centre, and I was performing in the opera. I was doing Manon. And we would creep in to the Spiegel Tent. And I saw a lot of people would come out of the opera and just sort of look past the Spiegel Tent and think, oh, that's not for me, that's a bit, you know, a bit out there. And then people in the Spiegel Tent would look over at the art centre and be thinking, oh, all that hoity-toity, I'm not doing that. But I knew that when those two little groups of people kind of met in the middle, they would adore what they found. And so to take the Spiegel Tent people and show them opera but dressed up in a little bit of burlesque and cabaret... Mm -hmm. And then also to bring the people over from the art centre and bring them into a tent and see that intimacy and that sort of, you know, with no fourth wall. And, and, and it was a really wonderful place where these, these little cultures all sort of got together and realised they actually had a huge amount in common and they loved the same things. So there, there's a lot of bad opera. There's a lot of bad everything, you know. I think you can be turned off any genre of music when you're not um, introduced to, to it the right way. And I often say it's kind of important that first opera you go and see. Maybe don't start with, you know, Wagner or, a, <laughs> you know, an atonal, you know, Berg opera. You know, start with a Mozart or a Puccini and, and just see something that's um, just sort of classically beautiful and, and hopefully you'll be... You'll, you'll yeah, dig it. <laughs> you'll dig it, yeah. You'll dig it. I find it interesting that you've also done some work in the jazz space because I feel like there's some similarities between opera in jazz in that it's moved into these kind of prestigious places 
and some people feel like that's not a space for me, I need to be intellectual to understand that music or I need to be really wealthy to access mm -hmm. that music. Do you think opera has a mistaken identity as an elite upper class genre? Well, funnily enough, both jazz and opera started as music for the people. Mm, exactly. You know, in the same way that jazz did, you know, opera started, you know, you didn't have TV, you didn't have anything. So Mozart uh, would write these operas. You'd be in a massive theatre. Everyone came to it. You'd eat and drink while you're watching it. People would throw things at the stage. It was kind of debaucherous. But that was what you did on a Friday, Saturday night. I don't know what the nights were going. It could have been Thursday, like the 90s. I don't know. But, you know, when, when people went out, they went to the opera. And the same with jazz. That mm -hmm. was, you yeah. know... Jazz clubs, and so it, it's kind of funny that they're now seen. You know, maybe one day hip hop will be seen as too elitist for the rest <laughs> of us. I don't know, or yep. you know, grime. But yeah, I think it's that's just a generational thing. And I, and you always think whatever your parents listen to is is really conservative and boring, and you don't want to listen to it. So I think it's just that generational thing. So you know, and there's a a lot of the opera audiences are older. And maybe it does take you to have got past, you know, having kids and had all your wild times and get to a place where you have the sort of patience and that, you know, I know, for instance, now that I'm older, I'm so much more open to learning new things than I was in my teens and 20s. And maybe that's what it takes to sort of really get into jazz or get into opera is just being a little bit older and just having the time not being in such a rush, having time just to really listen and take things in. It's an interesting point around audience development. It's an extremely expensive genre to produce, right? Mm, yeah, it can be. Yeah. And there is a lot of questioning in the arts community around the level of funding for opera. Well, what do you think the future of opera is in Australia? I'm actually excited about the future of opera in Australia if, if it's... Um if it goes in the direction I think it should, which is investing in new Australian work. Um, that's definitely what I'm interested in, in telling Australian stories or certainly stories that resonate to modern Australian audiences and utilising the wealth of talent that we have in this country, um, both creatively and performance and technically. I think... I get really frustrated when I see opera productions that have obviously spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on costumes and sets. I love a beautiful costume and I love a beautiful set, but the, the attention to detail that used to be in opera was at a time when you paid the people who made those costumes nothing. We now live in a world where, thankfully, we pay people. So you... The idea of having this whole team of seamstress, wardrobe people making, you know, 300 costumes for one show that then has five performances doesn't make any sense to me. You know, you're doing short runs. I think there is a way of still finding glamour and, and, and a, a sense of quality on stage without spending all that money. Um, because I think what happens is that comes at the expense of paying your artists or, oh, we can't afford to put this show on. Well, there is ways, I think, of making things, not on a shoestring exactly, but slightly more sensible budget-wise. 
we do absolutely need funding, but I also think we really need to invest in Australian talent. So many Australian singers, the really good ones, go overseas. What I don't understand is why companies will spend a lot of money to bring over an international that no one's heard of, and they won't bring over an Australian who's doing really well in Germany or something. It doesn't make any sense to me. I know a lot of singers who are working overseas and can't get a job here in Australia. And I, I think that needs to change. And look, we're at a real juncture. Um, the artistic director of Op Australia and um, Victorian Opera have just announced their retirements. Hopefully, the boards of those companies will, you know, get new artistic directors who really want to look at that future and really want to invest in the industry in Australia. So I think it's a really exciting time. I think we're going to get there. And, you know, when we did Lorelei, it was incredible the amount of new audience we got who wouldn't usually go to an opera. And we were talking about, you know, the week we did Lorelei in Queensland was the week that everything kicked off with Brittany Higgins and Grace Tame made her press club speech. And there's a line in her speech that was something about shoulders back and tell our story. There's a line in Lorelei that was shoulders back and persevere, tell our story loud and clear. It was so sort of in the zeitgeist and I think if we can make work that is in the zeitgeist and is, is having the conversations that we are having in, in bars and in homes, mm. then I think opera can be relevant again and, and people will get to see that beauty and it won't be this old behemoth, old you know, elitist thing anymore. Do you think there's an opportunity to look at things such as quotas in terms of casting for Australian-based productions that receive funding? I know that's definitely been a conversation in the contemporary sector and also in music theatre around you should have local support acts for big touring shows and things like that. I mean, who is looking after opera performers in that kind of advocacy space? It's a really big discussion to have. It's not, you know, we're not actually um, in the same space equity-wise as music theatre actors. And I see casting going on in opera companies that would just wouldn't... No-one would stand for it in a music theatre stage or on a theatre stage. And I don't understand why it's being accepted on opera stages. Look, I'm all for bringing an international artist out here. I've, you know, when I was at Opera Australia, I got to work with some conductors and some singers that lifted us as a company, lifted us, you know, we got to see a world-class artist sing and it was incredible and uh, the whole cast lifted as a result. I don't think we should say no international singers anymore, but I think there has to be a balance. I also think we should be casting for the singers we have, you know, as opposed to saying we're going to do this opera and there's no one in the country who can sing it. Well, why are we doing that opera right now? You know, there's a whole bunch of other operas where we could, we could be putting those operas on and using these incredible singers that we have here in Australia. And again, I'm not saying we should never do Wagner, we should never do this or that, um, but there's a balance, I think, that we can find um, between the two uh, I think we should be looking at the incredible talent we have and um, putting shows on stage that celebrate that talent. There's been a lot of conversations in the last few years around a call for a feminist reboot of opera. Hmm. A lot of productions feature gendered violence and there's examples of female characters that are abused or murdered, heroines sacrificing themselves for men and lots of female villains. 
mm. and there's been a lack of opportunity for female composers to produce and create work in the field, which isn't exclusive to opera, of course, because mm -hmm. it's been across the board in, in the music industry. And there's a lot of commentary around stereotypes of culture, but I understand there's a lot of traditionalists that love opera, that believe in the works being replicated exactly as per the original score and disagree with modernising themes. How do you think we can ensure that the genre grows new audiences and evolves socially while still honouring the tradition of the art form? I think, like with so many of these arguments that are being had at the moment about, you know, wokeness or... There, there is a way in the middle. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be one or the other. And I think with certainly with cultural appropriation and with um, you know gendered violence in opera, I have seen some incredible productions where they can um, still keep the classic nature of that piece while being very conscious of of the cultural appropriation of the gendered violence. If, if they're showing that violence, you know. <laughs> Violence does happen a lot to women, so it's yeah. not like we have to pretend that doesn't happen. But I think there is a way, and in really great directors, and I thought Sarah Giles, who directed Lorelei, um, and she's um, currently in the in pre-production for La Traviata for Opera Queensland. And La Traviata, you know, Violetta was a courtesan. There's lots of things in that piece that, in old productions, you just you wouldn't want to see on stage now. It would feel really weird. But she's looking at that from a feminist point of view. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm researching a piece about the Little Lon area of Melbourne and the, the female-owned brothels. And I think it's that looking at sex work is a really interesting conversation to have at the moment and looking at the fact that it is work and, uh, you know, taking away that stigma. And so she, you know, is, is looking at La Traviata from that point of view and instead of glamorising um, Violetta, who is essentially, you know, a sex worker, you, you know, to actually to, to, to look at that. And I don't think you need to change that much to be able to just have those conversations in an intelligent and contemporary way. And the same thing goes with, you know, cultural appropriation. Look, there's a lot of pieces that... Um, Puccini was very... Um, sort of obsessed almost with exoticism and he, he never actually really went to Asia but, but wrote a lot of pieces that were based um, in what was then called an oriental landscape. And uh, there was recently um, a complaint made about cultural appropriation in a production of Turandot, I think, in, at Opera Australia. And look, it's, it, it's an interesting conversation. It was a shame that they had that conversation directly with the newspaper and not with the opera company and had an intelligent conversation about it. Um, but look, I think with the right director and the right artistic directors, we, can, we don't have to throw out all these pieces. Um, I think we can... I think it's a really great opportunity, actually, to look at it and have the conversations in a different way. Um, you know, Lorelei was... That's what we wrote that piece about, really, was sort of sick of the fact that we were always playing these same really tired, clichéd roles. And that's another reason why I think it's fantastic if we really invest in new work, because we can start to create uh, really interesting three-dimensional characters for, for women in opera. And also, um, obviously, bringing in female um, create creatives. And I'm doing a piece at the moment with Opera Queensland... Uh, that Kate Miller-Heidke's written the libretto for, uh, and that is 
a story of a... It was based on a real story of a woman from a podcast I heard uh, who was a, a sort of coming off drugs, had a small baby. She realises through a phone call that actually she's been involved in a relationship with domestic violence and how she's going to get herself out of that. And again, this is, it's a, it, to me, it just immediately said, this is an opera. This, these, are, these are feelings that are operatic feelings that can be expressed with the operatic voice. But it's a conversation, you know, and she actually, it's, it's, she gets herself out of that. There is hope at the end of it. And it's not glamorising that kind of tragic um, heroine, you know, in, in both ways of that word. But, yeah, I think, again, I actually am excited about those constraints because I think that gives us space to have really interesting conversations and find new ways of telling those mm. old stories. I think so too. And even in more mainstream art, like Disney, mm. you know, they've recently been putting all those disclaimers in front of all of the Disney kids' animated films around cultural appropriation yep. and depictions of different people and, and the Disney princesses that have kind of, you know, copped a lot of criticism around gender depictions and that sort of stuff. And there's been great conversations and now you're seeing these new Disney princesses that are, you know, really strong or have these more kind of, you know, multifaceted characters. They're no longer just running around waiting to be kissed. Totally. And so because we had that conversation about all those old Disney princesses, that's why we got Moana and that's why, yeah. you know, we got the family Madrigal and, you, you know, I don't think that was a bad thing. And I think in the same way we can... Um, but, you know, you can still watch Little Mermaid. I think it's... But mm. as, if the kids are having a conversation about the problematic elements of the Little Mermaid, that's great. That's a conversation that's good to have. So I think the same thing can be done in opera. We can, you know, it actually gives us space to have those those conversations. Um, and, you know, I look back... I there's, a, there's only one opera I did that was ever put on TV or filmed, and it was Trial by Jury that I did with Opera Australia. And I watched that recently. I found it on YouTube. And it's it just would never get put on stage today like it did. It was just... It's not that long ago, but I just looked at it, and it was just awful. It's about a sort of a divorce case, and I played the divorcee. And at one point, the man who's I'm divorcing is... I fall over and he starts kicking me on the ground and then I end up getting away with it because I start sitting on the knee of the old creepy judge and it's the whole thing is so mind-bogglingly bad, you know. But I then look at it and I thought afterwards, could you do that again now? And I thought, yeah, you could, but you have to work really hard to, to, to present that so that people are like, seeing what it is, but still enjoying it. I think there is still a way of doing that. Gilbert and Sullivan is particularly problematic, but I'm, <laughs> I, you know, I have a, an idea of how I want to do the Mikado. Um, I still think you can find great things. You just have to work a little hard. And look, you know, that's all this sort of wokeness. People complain about, oh, it's so... It just means you have to work a little bit harder. That's all. You just have to think, is this what I'm doing offending someone? It's just a little bit more work. It's not that. It's not the end of the world. <laughs> when we think about the canon of classical music and the great operatic works and composers, and you read those lists, the top composers, the top works, mm. the, it's largely a European monoculture and very male-dominated. Mm -hmm. 
do you think things are changing and there are more opportunities? I know you mentioned the piece you're working on with Kate Miller-Heinke. Are you seeing that more globally, that there's more opportunities for women and diverse range of people to be able to make new works? Yeah, I do. Look, everyone... Um, people have diversity quotas now. People are really conscious of diversifying their creative um, table, whether that be performers or, or writers, composers. Um, and I think that's a really good thing. It's, it's opening up a lot of doors for a lot of people who's, you know, were just facing a very solidly closed door before. Um, but, you know, it's interesting because, yes, it was very male-dominated. But, for instance, the piece that I'm rehearsing at the moment with Victorian opera, The Happy End, um, I had always known that piece as being by Kurt Weill and Bertolt Brecht. They wrote Thrupney Opera, Mahogany. But I've since realised while doing this that it was actually written by Elizabeth Houtman. She was Bertolt Brecht's secretary. Turns out she wrote the bulk of Thrupney. She was an uncredited writer on Mahogany and she wrote the entire script of The Happy End. But she was sort of cast aside by Bertolt Brecht, who just wrote her off as his secretary. She did the full translation of The Beggar's Opera, which become, became Thrupney Opera. Um, she had a huge influence on these works, but we never knew about her. So I think even, you know, if you dug a little deeper below the surface of even the operatic canon, there's probably a lot of women who had a lot of input into it as well. So I don't think women are just getting a chance now. They're just actually being, you know, given the credit for the work they're doing a bit more now. It's, it's you know, not perfect by any means. But, um, yeah, it's not like women have just found out they mm -hmm. had this talent to do things and they never had it before. Um, they just were sort of swept under the carpet and, you know, swept aside. So it's been really interesting. And, and the piece I'm doing, knowing that, it's changed the way I've seen everything. I play a gang boss. So it's a female gang boss. The Salvation Army is run by a female major and the female protagonist, Lily, in it is a really strong, fierce woman who stands up for her principles and, and always does what she thinks best and, and faces danger. She, it's, a, it's quite a feminist piece. And I don't think anyone has ever looked at it in that light before, but when you realise that there was a woman behind the writing of it, you look at it differently and, and it opens things up. And so I think when you go back to a lot of that operatic canon... And you don't necessarily have to find out if there was a woman who wrote it, but I do think you can, you can find the, the female strength within a lot of those stories that have just been ignored before. Mm -hmm. I think it's really common, you know, across all different art forms, just the invisibility of the creative contributions of female gender-diverse people within different productions you know even in contemporary music you know you look at records that Etta James was putting out in the 50s and she wasn't credited as yeah. a writer on most of them but yeah. she was she was told don't put your name on there then you can avoid paying some taxes yeah. <laughs> she thought fantastic yeah. um, and so her name wasn't credited for so many songs that went on to make heaps of money for other people I mean, you look at all the authors George Sand all these authors who would just you know, gave themselves... I mean, look, even J.K. Rowling gave herself that name just because, you know, you don't want to have a, a lady's name on a book. It won't sell as many copies. So it, it's, yeah, it's a really common thing for, for, uh, for women to feel they have to sort of hide who they are or hide their contribution. Um, but, you know, thankfully I do think that's changing, which is, which is great. Can we talk about body image in opera? It seems to be the one genre of music where the pressure to be skinny for women is not as prevalent. 
It's absolutely not true. It's actually, I, I think it's, it's everywhere and it's absolutely in opera. I think there's this sense that people say, you know, it's not over till the fat lady sings or you've got this sense of these, you know, um, Valkyrie that are big. Mm. But you look at someone like Joan Sutherland. She was in no way fat. But to, to make the sound she made, she had the most extraordinary lung capacity, the most extraordinary torso. A lot of the women, you know, Lisa Gastine was a singer I sang with very early on, and she was, she is a, a big woman, but in no way is she fat. She is, she has big bone structure, and, and so I think this, this idea that, you know, these opera singers are fat is, is just kind of not true. In opera, like in life, there are people of all different shapes and sizes. And the thing I have, annoyingly, is ac there's actually a lot of um, body image pressure in opera. Um, you know, when I first started with Opera Australia, I was, you know, the young soprano. I soon realised that that young soprano to play all those young, pretty little, I used to call them faux naive peasant girl sluts, all the <laughs> Enas and the Ettas, they wanted this nice little pretty little soprano. And once you get older and what have you, they, you know, they sort of get the next lot of young, pretty sopranos. When I was at university auditioning for the scholarship that I ended up getting, which was a philanthropic scholarship, um, he used to get all the singers, all the female singers anyway, to, they, they put a table with glasses of water. I remember at the time they kept going, do you want a glass of water? And I was like, no, I'm fine. And then after a while I was like, oh, it must sound dry. I'll get a glass of water. He did it apparently because he thought that women could quite often hide how big they were from the front. He wanted to see how big their ass was when he went and got a glass of water. He didn't want fat opera singers on... He, he'd say, and he didn't give money to fat opera singers. And it was a really shocking thing to hear that. And, and that is, I've, I mean, I've never forgotten that happening. But what I really have been and bonnet about at the moment is opera companies quite often, not all of them, but most, use models to advertise their operas. So if you look at if you look at you know trams going past sometimes you'll see Madame Butterfly that's not the person who's singing Madame Butterfly that is a model and it infuriates me because it's sort of like are we so disgusting that you you won't use us in your marketing and you know I recently saw an opera company do a post for International Women's Day and they had a, a whole bunch of the women that and you know they are using women to advertise their operas and they're trying to highlight strong female roles but I think all but one of them were models, were young models. They weren't the opera singers that were going to be singing in that opera. Um, and I find it infuriating because I actually would love us to celebrate the diversity of uh, shapes and sizes of all singers. And again, I think that should be happening in life. You know, I'm so sick of just seeing this one sort of norm core version of what we're meant to be. And I feel like opera is the last place where, you know, um, there is this sense, yes, that people think, oh, you can, you, you're allowed to be a bigger opera singer. Quite often, as I said, opera singers who are a bit bigger and not maybe tiny, it's, it's all lung capacity. It's that, you know, they, they have to be big, strong, they have to mm. hold an entire amplifier within their torso. So... Yeah, I, I actually think it's a really important discussion to have, actually. Right I now. think it's similar, you know, going back to your point earlier around being an elite athlete. I mean, we see Olympic 
rowers are often very tall. You need the mm. stretch, you know, the different physicalities for the different sports. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Do you think the same pressure is there for male artists within opera? Because I've heard that there's more leniency around how heavy men can get because it's harder to cast them for certain roles. There is, yeah. Oh, look, there is. But there's also, you know, I think there's body image on both sides. It's not just a female problem. And, you know, I know that there are certain men who were had great physiques, traditionally hot physiques, I guess, if you will, who every director I ever worked with got them to have their shirt off sometime in the opera. And I think they're, you know, suffering from this issue just as, as much as the women are in some ways, you know, just being, I think, just this sense that we have to stop thinking that there's this just one ideal of sexy. You know, I've, yeah. we all have thought... I mean, I've, I've watched singers on stage and just thought they were the sexiest things I've ever seen. It's got nothing to do with their physique. It's to do with what they can do. And I think we just have to start looking at what bodies can do and not what they look like. And if we focus on what they can do, what our own bodies can do, instead of what it looks like, I think we'll be all in a much better place mentally. But also we'll just have a much more fulfilling world to be able to have this diversity of shape and size. Um, but I do think, you know... My experience is from a female perspective, so I, 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 I focus on that. But I do think men deal with it a little bit as well. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, it, yeah, I think every industry has it, but it is absolutely still in opera. Do you think it's something that the artists can push back more on? You know, I know with actors, they're getting a lot, you know, in the film world, a lot stronger about that kind of how I want to be depicted... You know, is that something when you sign a contract for a particular production that you say, yes, I'm going to be in the production, but you have to use me? There, the, there the are promo. not many opera singers in this country who have any agency whatsoever. The only reason why I even feel confident enough to talk about this with you here is because I'm no longer vying for jobs in that operatic world. There is so little work for opera artists in this country you do not complain because mm. you want to get work. And when the national company... Um, does something that you think is, is, you know, I know people who have complained and written articles in Limelight about it and then never, never got work with that company again. And look, you know, you can't say definitely if it was because they've spoken up, but uh, people are scared to speak yeah. up about these sort of issues because they want to get work. And opera is, there's just a really small amount of work in this country for, for opera singers. So... People don't complain. Yeah, and a small amount of space for arts and local music in any of our media outlets as well, you know, yep. which is why even though that report came out a few years ago by Chrissy Vincent, which revealed that commercial radio in Australia isn't adhering to the minimum Australian quotas, it was very, very difficult to get any musicians to really speak out about that. Absolutely, because people want work and you don't want to burn your bridges in this country, you know, you don't want to be ostracised but I think if we do band together and um, start pushing back and start asking those questions and having those conversations and look you know for me it's when opera companies post those pictures I just put a nice little comment under their Instagram post going this is fantastic can't wait to see the show but gosh I wish we could see a photo of the opera singer who's in this production instead of a model you know I think we just have to ask those questions and 
you know, money talks. If people think it's going to affect their ticket sales, they'll change, you know. There's a reason why Coon Cheese changed its name to Cheer because it wasn't necessarily that they, you know, they st started having some moral thought. It's because they're not going to sell as much cheese. You know, I think <laughs> you have to have... We, we have to, as consumers, start demanding more of the companies who are giving us these products. We have to just... We have to demand more. You mentioned the operatic voice and being a singer myself, I couldn't not ask you some questions around the vocal mechanics because I'm just so fascinated about that classic operatic sound. My very limited understanding is around a kind of open throat technique where it's lowering the larynx, raising soft palate. It's very technical. How do you get into that type of voice and how do you change your vocal approach when you're switching between that operatic voice as well as your contemporary jazz kind of stylings and when you sing cabaret? Oh, look, I think the reason why I've been able to do that is because I'm, I don't think that much about my technique, probably not enough, and that's probably why, you know, my operatic career, I, there are a lot of better singers than me is what I'm trying to say operatically. And I, I never, I did, although I'd learnt classically and, and with fantastic teachers, with technique, I was always much more of a, you know, I listen and how, I wasn't very good at explaining what I'm doing and that's why I don't really teach now, I don't think I'm very good at explaining to other people how to teach, uh, how to sing rather. Um, but I, I describe it as singing operatically is like driving a Rolls Royce and singing in a cabaret sense is like driving a Harley Davidson. The mechanics <laughs> are kind of the same, but they're kind of different. But they're both at the top of their, the best machines they can be in their space. Um, so there are a lot of similarities, but a, a lot of differences, I guess. Look, I'm not the best person to speak about, about technique. Um, I do a lot of it just by feel and by sound. Uh, but I did have a really good teacher very early on who taught me a lot about support and and not making sure this does the work and not this. And I think um, that has put me in good stead to be able to sing cabaret and have the range that I have because I'm not, you know, doing damage by just singing everything from here. It's, mm. you know, it's like you know, lifting something big and using yeah. your legs and not yeah. just using your, your arms, you know, it's kind of that thing. Um, but, yeah, look, I'm, I'm not great with explaining technically what I do. So you heard the sound and you're able to kind of, you know, emulate that. Are you someone who loves to do impersonations? Do you hear different voices and want to match that as well? well a little bit, but I'm, I'm not like a, you know, I have a, so much respect for, you know, <laughs> Christina Bianco and Jess Robinson and some of these beautiful women I know who do fantastic impersonations. That's not me either. No, I don't know. I, look, I had a really fantastic couple of teachers very, on, very early on, Hartley Newman, Jeanette Russell, and then Teresa Carhill, all fantastic singers in their own right who did a lot of kind of hands-on teaching. This is where you should be feeling wow. it and, you know, this is the space and, and no, from here. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think just being in a room with a really good teacher, um, I'm just not very good at putting all of that knowledge into words <laughs> and explaining it to someone else. Um, but I can, you know, I could hear when someone's doing it wrong. You know, with operatically as well, there's a lot that goes on just with your facial muscles as well to 
um, to, to, to do the sound. Again, just anything that takes the pressure off those tiny little, you know, vocal cords um, and get everything else to do the work. I, I don't... I don't know. A lot of people do ask me how, you know, how I think about differently about singing cabaret and singing opera, and I don't know. I just feel you like just when it. I sing opera, it's putting the car into overdrive. You know, you just yeah. put the clutch in overdrive. Oh, there it is. So that's yeah. So it feels more demanding. I realise how much I think about singing is like driving. I do like cars. I do really like <laughs> driving a car. Just realise. Hmm, okay. But it's more physically demanding, singing opera. Oh yes, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. It's a it's a full body experience singing opera, and I think one of the reasons why my operatic career didn't, you know, it went to a certain. You know, I'm pretty proud of what I've achieved in in opera circles, but vocally, it you know, I never went to that next level. I think because it is it you have to just be um, so precious with that instrument, and. It has to really be 100% of your time is protecting this. You're an elite athlete. Yeah. And I think um, people forget with opera singers that this is why they don't do operas on concurrent nights. You know, you have a night off because it is like running a marathon. You need a day off to rest and recuperate and come back on. And I just don't think I had that level of physical dedication um, you know, I loved going off and doing cabaret and stuff, but uh, I don't think I could have had that if I had... Yeah, I had to choose one or the other, and I just, I'd like too many things. <laughs> I'm really fascinated and in awe also of your mm. whistle register. Oh, yeah. So for those who aren't across whistle register, mm -hmm. it's those incredibly high, high notes that maybe you remember. Yes! <laughs> Maybe you remember Minnie Ripperton really mm. launched that in contemporary music. Loving you. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, Mariah Carey is one of the, the best known. Get the finger exactly, <laughs> finger out. How did you know and when did you know that, that you could get right up there? I mean... Um, well, funnily enough, you mentioned in that... Very lovely, very long introduction. I was, it was touched. It felt like this is your life. I loved it. Um, Ema Sumac. <laughs> uh, Ema Sumac was a 1950s Peruvian singer. I discovered her. Someone gave me... In the 90s, uh, there was this trend of... I think they opened up Capitol Records or Verve or I think both maybe, and they got DJs to remix. You know, there was mm -hmm. that real lounge where, you know, yep. especially French DJs were remixing old... Um, exotica. Yeah, material. exotica and jazz songs. And there was a song called uh, Mumbo Lounge or something, and someone recorded it to mini-disc for me. I was very, very um, future-forward in the 90s. And I listened to it, but I didn't have what, what it was written on anything, because it was just kind of recorded for me. And there was a song on there that had that, and I didn't know if it was a computer sample or it was an instrument, but it just captivated me, and I just, I just kept hearing that. And so I'd try and sing along to that, and at that stage I didn't know what it was, and then over the years I'd hear snippets of it in ads or on TV and soundtracks and stuff, and I soon came to know that that was Ema Sumac. So I, I wanted to try and sing like her, um, she actually 
didn't always use whistle tone as much. She, her, her voice, she was like Jessica Pratt. She was like this coloratura soprano. She was able to kind of go up to that and then kind of mix into whistle tone. I'm not mm. entirely sure what she was doing, um, but I emulated it doing whistle tone. I didn't know it was whistle tone at the time. I was just making noises and realised I could still have intonation while doing it. And then I was doing a version of Oops, I Did It Again and I was hosting... <laughs> Uh, the opening night gala at Edinburgh Fringe Festival one year. I was trying to think of something to do and with the band I said, why don't we do a verse that sounds like it's sped up, like a record sped up. And so I just, I remember practising it in the shower and I was like, yeah, I can totally do that. And so we did Oops, I did it again. Like, like we, we used to do it as an old jazz number and yeah, did like a sped up record. And then I just sort of brought it into comedy acts. So um, yeah, I did, did a version of an ACDC song that I did the guitar solo with with uh, with Whistletone. And so it was really great to be able to... I created the show about Ema Sumac to actually sort of for that to come full circle. And then Lorelei was the first time ever I've done an opera where Whistletone was written into the opera for me. So that was super cool. That's incredible. Yeah, and I think Kate and Connor Donetto, who's also composing that piece, is going to be writing some Whistletone into that as well. I'm glad you mentioned Ema Sumac because that was right on my next question. <laughs> I've been a huge fan of her work, actually, so I was really excited to see you develop a show paying homage to her incredible story. Uh, for those who don't know, Ema Sumac was a Peruvian artist who Hollywood claimed was an Incan princess, and I believe the Peruvian government at the time supported that claim, um, but I, I don't think it was actually true. Um, she came to prominence in the US in the golden age of exotica music in the 50s after she was discovered by composer Les Baxter, who was quite a prolific artist at the time, and she was, at the time, the highest-selling Capitol Records artist... Um, she was just amazing and I think really under-recognised. And the show that you produced won a Helpman Award. It was shown at Adelaide Cabaret Festival, Sydney Opera House. Can you tell us about developing the work and what that experience was like? Yeah, it was wonderful. I, I ended up reaching out to her former assistant uh, in LA. How did and you find this former oh, assistant? The intranet, you know. I love just, it. Go Google. Yeah, and, and started having conversations with him and he was selling some of her things he, he right. she left all her she kept everything and left everything and he he'd actually had some of it stored in Dita Von Tisa's she had a storage container and she got all the best stuff she can fit into it too glorious woman that she is and but I I sort of because of sort of kind of on the periphery of knowing Dita and this sort of stuff I guess I f found out about it got into conversation with him said how I was really interested in singing some of her music and sent him some stuff and we started talking a lot. I bought a whole bunch of things from him. And then he sent me this big, you know, we talked a lot and sent this email saying how he only had one box. And in fact, looking after it all was, he didn't have much money. And looking after it, he lived in a tiny flat. It was getting too much for him. And he had this one box that he had. And I said, look, I'll just buy the box from you. And he said, oh, it's just kind of, there's a bits and pieces. It's all a bit random. And I was like, that's totally fine. And my brother-in-law was living in LA at the time and so I got it sent to his house and then my mother-in-law was coming back to Australia and she had it in this rubbish bag you know brought it back in a suitcase and then brought it back and I remember opening that bag and I got this smell it was like I guess probably a bit of mothballs and stuff but it was also just her I just suddenly was like this is this is her in this bag and I pulled it out and there were 
there were costumes and there were little bits of broken jewelry and stuff, but there was also like shirts that she'd bought on tour in Japan and beautifully pressed silk little blouses and a whole bunch of unopened support pants. Yes, I have totally worn a pair of them on stage. <laughs> That's what you're thinking, and and all this sort of stuff, and that's what really prompted me to look into her life. Mm. And I ended up going over to see Damon. I've been over there twice and been to his home and looked through all her old scrapbooks and found out a lot of stuff about her life that hadn't been talked about publicly before, and especially about her husband Moises Vivianco, who he discovered her. He had a big sort of Peruvian traditional band um, in Lima in the 40s. And her cousin, although I don't think they were literally cousins, but I think grown up together, was a dancer in the band and said, my cousin's got this fantastic voice, brought her in. And I think he soon saw the potential. And so he just formed the Inca Taki Trio, which was um, Cholita, the cousin, and Moises and Ima. And they went to, to America. And they went to New York first and were playing back rooms of, you know, delis and you know, doing the hard yards and he, he invested in a sardine business. I mean, they really did. And I think they were just about to give it all up. And then Hollywood Bowl did, with Les Baxter and Martin Denny, did this big exotic kind of world music show and asked her to be part of it. And that was 1950. And she did three numbers and that changed her life. So that really sort of kicked her into the stratosphere. And she'd She'd, they'd already gone over and recorded this first album with Capital. And, yeah, she was she outsold Bing Crosby in the 50s. I mean, she amazing. Was, she sold up. The thing is, what I found out about it, though, is when I, whenever I do the show, you know, you have to get your APRA rights. And so you do get to know who wrote these songs. And she's not listed as a writer on any of these songs. But you can tell by singing it that this is vocalese that has been improvised largely by her. So her contribution to a lot of that music, I think, did get underplayed. You know, Moises was very much a Svengali. But there's a whole bunch... And, I, you know, I, my show's an hour long, so, you know, I can't keep... <laughs> I could talk for a really long time about her life, but um, she had a baby. In 1950, they had a young child, um, Charlie. But it turns out, as it went on, that Charlie was not her son. It was Cholita's. But they didn't want to ruin their chances of stardom, so she pretended that Charlie was hers and they lived at this sort of family. So I can only imagine what life like was like at home and touring. Um, then she found out a few years later that her secretary was pregnant with twins, did a paternity test a year later and it was Moises, and they divorced and then they got this big Russian tour. The Khrushchev himself asked them to come and do this massive tour. They couldn't tour as a divorced couple so they got married again and went on this tour and so I'd, I can only imagine what was really going on in her world. There's, there's even this big in the paper the LA Times an altercation where she goes to the house and you know she's showing bruises and it, it was pretty dark times and look I think she was really fierce and a, and, and a complete badass and she you know, always fought. She ended up doing this kind of prog rock album in the 70s Miracles. called Miracles. Yeah, I've got that. I think Aztec Records here did a re-release or yeah, some right. label did a re-release. I've got a copy of it. And it's wild. It's wild. She even did, you know, a kind of, you know, um, German electronica sort of remix of one of her songs later on in the early 80s. And, you know, she always was trying to 
to learn new things. And she, she really did think of herself as a, a serious artist, though. And I think even the Mumbo record, she never really performed that on mm. stage. Even that was the big album and she rarely performed it because she thought it was... And it was. It was this mismatched pastiche of world music. It wasn't really her yeah. thing, you know. Um, we all love it because it's kitsch and wonderful. Yeah, and it's but so fun. But that's that was really common in that era that yep. a lot of the vocalists, they had no real say over what they recorded. I mean, Sarah Vaughan has a huge collection of tracks recorded around that time that was similarly put out a mumbo record, put mm. out a, you know, this sort of Latin theme stuff that yep. she was like, well, why are you me. getting me to do this? But they're under contract and it's today you'll be, re you'll be singing this today, Sarah. Totally. I mean, I also love all of that. I'm obsessed Same, with Sarah Vaughan, but it's so it fun is. to listen to. But I understand that they didn't feel like that they was them. They had agency them. in it, totally. Yeah, and I think with Edith Mustomac, she really did. She loved it when she had traditional opera com opera singers come to her her shows, and she she really spoke. You know, oh, you know, Maria Callas loves what I do. You know, she she really wanted to be accepted by um, traditional opera singers. She sang. Um, she sang opera in, in some of her shows. And I sing Visitarte from, from Traviata in there because she did, uh, from Tosca, sorry, she did sing that in her shows. Um, but, yeah, there's, it seems like a tragic life but also quite an extraordinary one and, and, you know, her music is still out there today and it was a real joy doing it. When I did it at Sydney Opera House, the front two rows one night, all flying these little Peruvian flags and I stopped the show at one point and I was like and they were all Peruvians they'd heard about the show and afterwards they were just there was an older lady in tears just saying I'm so happy that you've brought this Peruvian singer that we love and you know people don't know about her and they loved that we'd brought that back to life so it's it was a, a real honour to kind of embody her on stage and tell her story and, and, and to feel like I was giving her a little bit of that agency back in a small way. I've heard you say that cabaret is the most intimate live art form. Mm. What do you mean by that? Well, I think, you know, when I was at Adelaide Cabaret Festival, a lot of people ask what is cabaret mm. because no one really knows what it is. And I actually think that its chameleon nature is its beauty and that it can be anything you want it to be. And I think um, cabaret lives between, in the cracks between the genres. So, you know, you can find a, a piece that doesn't quite fit into dance, <laughs> but it doesn't quite, it's not really theatre. It's, it's something in between. Well, that's cabaret, you know. And I think the other thing that it, it doesn't have to have this, but it often does, is no fourth wall. And I think there is a sense that you're having this direct dialogue with yeah. the audience. Um, and whether that be, whether you're singing opera or jazz or music theatre, um, there's a sense that you're telling a little story about your life and these songs are helping you tell it. Cabaret doesn't have to be biographical. Again, it, it's not one thing. It's a whole bunch of other things. The other thing I love about cabaret... And I said this, actually, because when I got that helpman for Cabaret, beautiful Rhonda Birchmore and Joel Creasy, I adore them both, but they said exactly something like that, like, oh, what even is Cabaret? And so I said, I decided this was time for a very small TED Talk, and I said, the beauty of Cabaret is going to be anything you want. And I said to the audience, if any of you out there don't see yourself represented on stage, you can get up in Cabaret 
and tell that story. If you don't see yourself represented, if you don't see your story being told on st stage, cabaret is the perfect place to do that. It's an affordable way of mounting a show, you know. Cabaret yeah. can just be you and a backing track. It can be you and a pianist or a piano accordion player or a auto harp, you know, you can do anything you want it to be. So it is a really accessible place for performers to come and, and tell their story. And, you know, I see quite often artists who wouldn't consider themselves, like Lizzo, for instance, she's a cabaret artist. I've seen her twice and she creates an intimacy with the audience. She's telling stories, she's talking to the audience. Mm. And I think for me that is the difference. And I get annoyed now where I go to see live music and they just kind of like shuffle about between songs and go, oh, yeah, this is the song we wrote it. Anyway, okay, we're going to start. You guys got the right key? Oh, yeah, okay, go. And it really annoys me because I'm like, dudes, put a show on. Get some cabaret. Everyone needs to learn a little bit from cabaret, I think. <laughs> you know, I think, again, it's, you know, those moments. I remember someone telling me in opera, you know, great theatre director said, it's not the moments where you're singing your aria that is the most important time to emote. It's the in-between times. It's when you're reacting to something else that's going on stage. And I think those moments, that's where cabaret lies. It's the in-between, in-between these worlds, in-between these moments, in-between emotions, um, in-between the audience and the, the sort of um, stage is, is this little space where cabaret, you can be vulnerable and you can be intimate. And it's a... I think it's just a fabulous genre and I, I'm a massive champion of it. Let's chat about your time directing Adelaide Cabaret Festival. I've heard you say that it was the hardest job of your life. Yeah, I think I always say it was also the best. <laughs> it was the hardest and the best and I would have done that forever if they'd let me. I loved that job. It was going out and seeing lots of shows and I made it a point to see almost every show that we booked. You know, I love going to see cabarets, so that was an absolute joy and I loved, you know, it was honestly like a kid in the candy store being able to kind of go and, you know, I used to love going to the milk bar and getting my mixed sweets and you'd go, I'll have a mint leaf yeah. and two yep, mates yep. and chico. <laughs> I remember That's that. That's what being an artistic director of the cabaret festival was like. It was like, oh. Okay, I want something classical and then, oh, no, it would be really good to have something really kind of dark and dirty. Oh, and then why don't we have like a biographical show about, oh, and then we have to have something of this. It was like a mixed bag of sweets and I loved every second of it. Um, I throw myself into roles like that. So it was hard because, you know, I remember the first year... Eddie and I just weren't happy with the cover they'd created. We had this vision in mind. It just wasn't happening. And so I was... Eddie was... He might have been in the States, but I was in Adelaide. And so I got together with Casper, a designer, in this car park opposite the Festival Centre, and we got a whole bunch of old rope and props and lights from Festival Centre. And in a 10-hour day, we created this... We spelt out the word cabaret using bits that we found backstage bits of rope and ladders and bits of set and then we got the lighting department to come in and light and it was stunning and it won a design award and we loved it but I, I'm yeah I'm, I'm very hands-on so I could have sat back and you know not been as hard work but I loved being in part of every little pocket of that festival and it I still think it's the best festival in the world it it's it has it's glamorous and you have this... We had this backstage club then that 
um, we created that was where all the performers used to come afterwards and people would just get up and sing with other performers. There was this real sense of collaboration and camaraderie that I don't know if you get at other festivals. You kind of you do your thing and then you go home. There was this real sense that everyone watched everyone else's shows and it was just glorious. I just loved every second of it. Would you have any advice for other artists that are interested or looking into moving into more behind-the-scenes roles like curating or marketing or working at a festival? Well, I think they should. I think, I think every artist should do a Fringe Festival. Um, I found it a real eye-opener um, coming from an opera world where we had people... You know, I had someone dressing me and I had someone doing my makeup mm -hmm. and I had the marketing team and we have this and that. My job was just to go there and sing, which was great. It was a real eye-opener and, I think, life-changing to go and have to produce my own show and do all of those jobs myself. Yeah. And I had to sell the tickets. And so it gave me a lot more respect for what goes on behind the scenes of a company like an opera company. Um, you know, we used to kind of get annoyed, oh, we're not getting enough marketing, we're not doing this. And then when, once you've done that yourself and you know how hard that job is, you know... I worked at Mietta's um, Queenscliff for years in my summers and Patricia O'Donnell, who was Mietta's sister who ran that, was a really hard taskmaster and I was working the front desk and she would not let anyone work the front desk until they had worked in the kitchen, they had um, worked as a busboy, they had worked in the bar, they had worked as a cleaner up in the rooms. We had to do all those jobs before we worked on that front desk. Because she said, you have to know when you're telling someone that they have to go and clean a room, you have to know what that it involves. Yeah. And I think that's... I, I take that lesson into my life in the arts. I think if you're going to work in the arts, you have to know... It's great to get an experience. I don't think you have to do all those jobs, but you have to be a part of it so you know what's involved. So instead of being on stage and getting annoyed that the lights are not pointing at you, you need to know what's involved, what their job is and what the, the enormity of that job and what that desk looks like. You don't have to do that job necessarily, but you have to have an understanding of what goes into it. And I think once you do that, you have so much more respect um, for everything that goes on around you. I think performers sometimes think they really are it, and it's not. You're the tip of the iceberg. And so I think anyone who wants to, to... And I think it's really essential to have... to do things other than just performing. I think it makes you a better performer. So even if you don't want to be a curator or be, a, you know, an artistic director, I think it's really important to... to even if it's just sitting at the desk while another show goes on, which I used to do because I love hearing them call a show, sitting backstage next to the stage manager and hear them call a theatre show. It's fascinating, and you realise how much they do. I think it's really important to do that. So I think if you're going to do artistic directing or something, do just be interested. Be interested in what's going on around you and, you know, the little the legs of the duck underneath the water, the, all that work that's going on to make your job easier. Um, that would be a big advice, and just be interested in other artists. I think the best job I am at is as being an artistic director. I think I'm really good at that and I think the reason why I'm good at it is because I'm really invested and interested in other artists. I'm interested in what they do, what makes them tick, why an audience likes them. I love seeing ways in which I can get this artist and that artist to do something together. You know, that's just absolute joy for me. So I think, I think it was probably just a, a life lesson. Be interested <laughs> in what's going yeah, on Yeah, the curiosity. Hmm. Also for me, directing festivals, 
particularly a genre-type festival like directing a jazz festival, mm. I really wanted to kind of challenge and push boundaries of the ideas of what jazz means and bring mm. different people into the fold. And it's really exciting as an artist to be able to, to do that. Yeah, and you don't have to break the model, but you can expand it, can't you? You don't have to kind of go, I'm going to throw everything out they've mm. ever done before, but you can expand it. It's like what we're talking about with opera. I think you don't have to just throw out all those old pieces you can keep them but just expand it like it can be more it can be yeah and I think it is really exciting isn't it and and again it goes back to that thing I was saying with the KD Lang had talked about but having constraints it's actually I mean it's almost worse if someone goes you can do whatever you want it's like well, where do you even start with yeah. that I think having parameters so having a festival that is a particular genre or something is great it's like okay that's that's where the goalpost is. What can we do here? You know, I think that's exciting. I think so too. One of the things I really admire about you is your entrepreneurial spirit. Mm -hmm. I love that you've just created your own niche. You've created your own shows. You haven't asked for permission or wait till someone says, we've made this thing for you. You've just gone, I've got this idea and I'm just going to go ahead and do it. Mm. Where do you think you've got the confidence and the, the gumption to do that? Oh, I think that's probably from from very early on. My parents were people who have just, you know, my mum and dad built houses. They um, did things for themselves. You know, they worked for themselves. Um, my dad was always making stuff. My dad was always... I remember, you know, if there was a, a door that he couldn't find at, you know, a, a latch that worked for it, he would go out there and he'd weld one and he'd make one and do it. You know, I think... Never kind of just giving up and going, oh, well, I can't find something that works. Just going, okay, well, we'll make it work. Let's find something and adapt it. And so I see that spirit come through in my work in in a lot of ways of just, you know, it's a little bit like that when people learn to be improvisers on stage and it's that yes and thing that people talk yep, about. Yeah, yeah. And I remember that being in that car park when we were making the cover of the Adelaide Cabaret Festival program and I remember, Kath, I was so excited to meet someone else who who was like, <laughs> you'd say some crazy idea and she'd be like, okay, let's see if we can make that. And look, it might not work, but who would try it, you know, and I can't stand when, and there were people we worked with sometimes who you'd go, okay, I need to create a C and I reckon if we could find like this and that and they'd go, yeah, no, you can't find that. And I'd just be like, what, you're just going to stop that conversation there, you know, as opposed to kind of going, okay, well, that wouldn't, but what about this? And I I think that has come from, yeah, come from my parents who that's what they did. They did it with houses, um, but it was really no different. It's the same kind of DIY um, kind of mentality, I think, and not afraid to get your hands dirty, you know, get in there and just do it yourself. You've achieved so much in your career and you're still working on multiple projects and have... She's busy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're busy, you're busy. Um, but what does success look like to you now? Um, oh, success for me is um, being able to say no to things. Now that I have kids, that's a really big leveller, as you'll know. Like you suddenly, I used to say yes to kind of everything because mm -hmm. you're like, this opportunity might not come again. I'm going to say yes to it. Um, it's really good to be able to know, go, actually... What is that? Do I need to do that? 
you know, sometimes I'd, I'd say yes to things for my own ego because you're like, it's so nice to be asked to do that. Yeah. But now it's like, is it just ego that I'm saying yes to that gig or do I, is it really going to forward my, you know, my process? Is it going to, you know, be... so? And I think success is being able to say no to stuff because obviously that's a luxury mm. that um, you can say no to stuff. So I think that would be success. But, yeah, I don't think success is a finite thing. I think, you know, um, just being able to do what I do, I feel really really lucky the arts are such a precarious industry to be in so just to be able to still be doing what I do and not have to have taken a job to support that a job that kind of kills my soul to support my habit in the arts <laughs> so it's a self-supporting habit I think that's success it's been so fantastic to chat to you. Thank you so much for being part of the Control podcast. Oh, my pleasure. It's been it's been great. You've yeah, it's been great just to have a, a fantastic kind of in, intelligent conversation with just someone who's, you know, over the age of 11. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to perform a song for us. Yeah, I am. Actually, I mentioned earlier um, you know, finding that whistle tone doing an ACDC song and I when I couldn't afford a band and I used to play my omni I used to play auto harp and then I found the electronic version of that which is an omni chord um so yeah I'd love to actually show you a little bit about the instrument please and then sing you a song please yes show me it even just looks cool it's lo it looks like something between a um like a guitar mixed with a I don't know it's it's, it's otherworldly yeah but, um I like to say that it's um, it's from the 80s, or as I like to call it, the future. <laughs> well, it, you know, it's kind of like a tennis racket. Like, it's sort of shaped. Okay, I can see that. Sort of so, it has a whole bunch of uh, different <laughs> different beats. Yeah, wicked, um, wicked beats. They're, they're wicked beats, and they're, I mean, you'll see, they're just so accurate. It's amazing. Um, so, here's country and western. Yeehaw! Fantastic. Um, <laughs> and then we've got uh, Latin. It's pretty sexy. Can you do a bit of your Ema Sumac on this? I know, I know. Um, she would be so horrified. Um, disco. No, we're not going to use any of those, obviously, for ACDC. Okay. We're going to use rock. But before I show you the rock and roll... Um, I just want to tell you a little bit of story of why I'm doing this song okay. because I found this clip on YouTube and it was an ACDC song and, you know, I love ACDC. It's, you know, I'm a good proud Aussie. But it was pretty horrifying because it was a French-Canadian lady singing an ACDC song in her Las Vegas show. It was Celine Dion. Oh. And... If you think that's pretty bad, it gets worse. She made it into a duet with Anastasia. Wow. It's pretty special. It's my gift to you, as you can find it on YouTube. <laughs> She's wearing a, a beige pantsuit. I actually I love Celine. She's wearing a beige pantsuit. She She's plays a air guitar icon. on it. Style icon. I mean, she's epic. So I'm going to play this song. I just have to warn you, though, that something about Anastasia's voice just came into my very soul and sometimes it just comes sort of spewing forth. If it happens, I apologise. Okay. 
So I'm going to use the rhythm marked rock. It's pretty hardcore. I'm pretty sure this is what ACDC always wanted. Okay, prepare yourself. It's pretty rock and roll. That was Ali McGregor in Control. For more info, please check the links in the show notes. Please subscribe to Control on your preferred podcast platform. And if you have a moment, please rate and leave a review. It helps other people find the podcast. This episode was recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation, and I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners and all First Nations people. Until next time, Chelsea Wilson signing off.